This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. You've got a Bible or there's one under a chair near you. You can grab it and open up to Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 21 to 28 is our story for today. Many years ago, there were a series of commercials by this financial firm called E.F. Hutton, and they all had the same kind of idea. There would always be a big crowd of people around and two people at the center. So imagine a, a busy restaurant where the din of, of forks and spoons and, and just the commotion of people conversing was all around and in the middle, two people talking, and they're talking financial things. And one says, well, my broker says, blah, blah, blah. And the other says, well, E.F. Hutton says, and at that moment, everything stops in the restaurant utter silence and heads turn and listen to hear what the person is going to say. And then the ad says, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. And in our story today, uh, by the way, I never saw that commercial. I read about it in a book. I don't even know who E.F. Hutton is. <laughs> I've never seen these commercials. So, yeah. <laughs> in our story today, Jesus steps into a synagogue and there are actually in our story two distinct moments where he demonstrates his authority such that the people are astonished and amazed. The first is simply through his teaching. So he comes and he's teaching. Now in the synagogue, like we do here, the custom was they would read from different portions of the scripture. For them, it was the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, the law, the prophets, the writings. And then somebody would teach on them, comment. And so Jesus was teaching on the Word of God, and as he taught on the Word of God, the people were utterly astounded. They recognized authority. The second distinct moment was then after that, a man with an unclean spirit, the spirit manifests itself, and there's a confrontation, a battle between Jesus and this unclean or evil spirit or a demon. And Jesus casts out the demon, and the people again are amazed and utterly astounded, and they said, here is authority, here is power. They recognize in Jesus a word of power in two ways. His teaching word has weight and authority to it. By what he says, they can tell he is someone with authority. But his word also has power in the sense that he commands and in the spiritual realm, there's obedience. This spirit obeys, and they're not used to seeing that. So both in his teaching word and in his word of command, they see an authority and a power, and they conclude, here is a new teaching, a, a new rabbi, a new teaching, a new school. And not only is it new, but there's power with it, power in the teaching itself, and also power in the spiritual realm over unclean spirits, over evil, woe. So today we'll see Jesus is a teacher. He's a man of wisdom. He teaches the word of God and the way of God. He delivers his followers from error, from the false teaching, from the hollow religious teachers who were teaching a religion of the traditions of men rather than based teachings based on the word of God. We'll also see that, the Jesus, that Jesus is a, a Lord in the spiritual realm, a master, a man of power and authority. He came to challenge the power of the devil and cleanse his people from the influence of evil spirits. And he does this still today. His word and his teaching still have power today 
to arouse our senses, to waken us up to the things of God, to be able to distinguish what are these traditions of men that mean nothing, that we're following after and clinging so tightly to, and to again give us a clarity and a distinguish, oh, I want to pay attention to the things of God. And he also sets us free from the influence of evil, whether it is the indirect influence of evil, the evil one and his schemes that are always at work set upon us, or even, yes, the direct and overt operation of demonic spirits, unclean spirits. Jesus is here today to challenge their power and to cast them out. So look at verses 21 and 22. Let's look at his teaching authority first. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So already, before he's expelling the demon, already they're stopped in their tracks because of his authority. It's clear that he is one, as it says, who had authority. It was self-evident. He taught, and it was evident that there was authority. And there's the story of Larry Bird, who was um, an NBA player back in the 80s and early 90s, played for the Boston Celtics, won a lot of uh, games and championships for them. Uh, they were at the end of a tight game, and they were in the huddle. A few seconds left, they had the ball. Larry says to his teammates, give me the ball and get out of my way. And then Coach KC Jones says, hey, I'm the coach. I draw the plays around here. And then he looks at the team and says, give Bird the ball and get out of his way. Because it was self-evident who had the authority. The scribes had positional authority, but you know positional authority does not always translate to real authority. You can tell someone has real authority when somebody will follow. Others will follow after them. And the reason that Bird had that authority to say, give me the ball and get out of my way, and everybody knows that's what's going to happen, he was the best player on the team, and everybody knew it. His authority was self-evident. Jesus' authority was self-evident. You know the phrase, oh, I wrote the book on that. You might be joking about a subject, and even though you didn't actually write a book, you'd say, I wrote the book on it. So people come to me, and they say, Brett, I've got some questions about weightlifting. Can you help me? And I said, of course, I wrote the book on it. And the connection between author, I wrote the book on it, and authority is important. If you did actually write a book on something, then it means that you're an expert, especially if it's not self-published, but if a publisher actually took you up and said, yeah, we think other people will read your stuff, it means you're an expert. You wrote the book on it. You're the author. Well, here we have the prime example, because the subject, what's he teaching? Again, he's teaching on the Word of God. The subject is the Word of God, and Jesus is himself the Word of God, capital W, the eternal Word of God here in human form, teaching on the Word of God written. And Jesus is saying, not only did I write the book on it, I am the book on it. I am the Word of God. The authority was in him. It was in his person. So that's why John, at the beginning of his gospel, says he was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. He was God. That's referring to Jesus. Or in Revelation, at the end, John again is writing, and he says, I saw the heavens open and a rider on a white horse whose name was the Word of God was leading the armies of heaven against the devil and his forces. 
So Jesus is called the Word of God at the end as well. And in Hebrews, it says that God upholds the universe by the power of His Word, and this is referring to His Son. He upholds the universe by the power of His Word. A little over a year ago, we or a month ago, we celebrated Christmas. Even as a baby in the manger, He was then the Word of God upholding the universe. Or as Paul says in Colossians, he was holding all things together. There in, in his humanity as a baby, he couldn't even hold up his head. And yet in his divinity at that same moment, he's holding up all the created order. And this babe, now all grown, enters a synagogue and begins to teach the Word of God to the people of God. He teaches them God's Word. He teaches them God's way. And it's no wonder that they're astounded and astonished at His authority. Now, if we look again at verse 22, it says, They were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority. But it doesn't say what He was teaching. Um, and, and the Bible is like this. You, you can understand the Bible as like a cliff notes um, account of things. And you think, well, well the Bible is really big. How can it be cliff notes? Well, just keep in mind the Bible covers thousands of years and hundreds upon hundreds of stories. And some really important stories only get condensed to just a few paragraphs. Or there'll be moments where it says, Jesus taught them and they were astounded. And you wonder, what did he say? But we do actually have a clue because in Matthew's gospel, Matthew records some of those teachings. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, and when Jesus finished the sayings, the crowd were, guess what? Astonished. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So Matthew is giving us a little bit more of a window into what he was teaching. And so the material of the Sermon on the Mount is probably and likely, at least some of it, what Jesus was teaching to there on that Sabbath. And again, if you're confused because you think, well, that was a sermon on the mountain, not in the Sabbath, keep in mind, Jesus was a traveling rabbi. His teachings, he was saying many, many, many times. Uh, the disciples, I assure you, had heard the Beatitudes dozens of times. And you can... Maybe humorously imagine John and Andrew sitting back. Another crowd has gathered. Jesus is teaching him again, and John's leaning in saying, what do you think? Is this going to be the elaborate or the short version of the Beatitudes? Andrew says, oh, he's going for it. It's the long one. We'll be here a while. So Jesus taught these teachings over and over again. These teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, that material is likely what he was teaching into. That is what the people were hearing and being astonished. And even the word astonished can carry with it a connotation of, of somewhat fear and trembling as well. And when we study the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we can also begin to understand a little bit more of the contrast. Why were the people hearing something very different? Now, in our scriptures, we don't have a ton of material about the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. We have a little bit when Jesus goes after them and says, you teach this and you teach that. 
But you can go, you can find things like the Talmud, which is a, a collection of rabbinical teachings. You can find Mishnah, you can find Midrash. There are these other Jewish teachings, and you begin to realize, whoa, around the words of Moses and the word of God, there was a whole host of other teachings. And much of it was to be taken in orally, memorized, and obeyed. You can get a sense for how burdensome that could be. It was so much. So the sheer quantity of it was something that Jesus went after. But also, because it was so much, it actually obscured the heart of the true word of God, the commands of God, what Moses wrote and the prophets and the writings. So just a little bit, just to give you an idea. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus does take the scribes to task. In chapter 7, first they come to him and they say, hey, your disciples aren't washing their hands and washing all the vessels. There was tradition around every time you eat, you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. And if you don't do it, you're defiled. And the disciples weren't doing it. And so the scribes came and said, why aren't they following these laws? And Jesus turns around and he says, you have a whole host of traditions that have been built up around the Word of God, and it's obscuring the Word of God. Listen to what he says. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he goes on and he gives another example. He says, you have this thing called Corban, which is a practice in which if there's money that ought to be used to support your aging father and mother, apparently there was some way that they could say, well, what I would have given to them is Corbin. I give it to the temple instead. And because they were getting kickbacks from the temple, there was a way in which they could keep that money. So instead of supporting their father and mother in their old age, they were keeping the money for themselves and they were using the religious system to do it. And Jesus says, not only are you obscuring the true word of God, but in this case, you're actually contradicting it. You're opposing it. This is so evil, he's saying. These were the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. The sheer quantity of them was overwhelming, and they actually led the people astray. So Jesus draws a distinction between those traditions of men and the actual Word of God. The Word of God, what Moses wrote, the Law and the Prophets, Jesus is always upholding. He's always upholding. He's never contradicting. Sometimes he gives a new and, and more fulfilled sense of its meaning, but he never overturns it or contradicts it. So Jesus draws a distinction between the Word of God and the traditions of man. And we can ask ourselves this morning, does it ever happen to us that we caught, get caught up in the traditions of men? that what people say is important. People's commentary, whether on religious things in Scripture or, or just on life itself, the commentary, there is so much commentary in the world today, is there not? And is it possible for us to get caught up and ensnared in the commentary of the world around us, what Jesus would call the traditions of men? Can that happen to us? Yes. Is it all around us? Yes. How do we keep clear? How do we keep focused on the Word of God? Well, we stay rooted in the Scriptures. We steep ourselves in the Scriptures, especially Jesus' teachings, His words. So that's why for us as Anglicans, 
all the canon is inspired, the Gospels have a special place because they are the teachings of Jesus. It's a good idea to be always at least somewhere, even if it's little by little, working through a gospel, refreshing yourself on the teachings of Jesus. And I would say this, as your pastor, and as someone who's watched this year, people get sideways and go wonky and get sucked into the traditions of men. Let me say this to you. I don't think it's silly or ridiculous to say the amount of time you spend in the Word of God, and especially the words of Jesus, ought to at least be equal to the amount of time you're reading the traditions of, of men, the amount of time you spend scrolling in the news, the amount of time you read articles. None of that is inherently bad. Tradition in itself is not inherently bad. The fact that I'm wearing a robe is due to tradition. It's not inherently bad. But how do you stay rooted? By staying steeped and distinguishing between the traditions of men and the word and commandment of God. This is so important, and I'm afraid that we're not doing this really well. I realized a little bit ago what this is kind of like. So if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, if you've read the books or you've seen the movie, here's what it seems like to me is happening. So recall, and if you haven't seen it, I'll try to explain a little bit of the story. At the end of the story, there's this character, Denethor, who's the master of the city, Minas Tirith, which is the main city on which the main battle is about to be fought. He's a man of great wisdom and learning. He's a man of great power in his own right, but at the end, he fails. And the reason that he failed is because he fell into despair. And the reason that he fell into despair is that he had in his keeping this magic stone that allowed him to see things far abroad. But the trick with this stone is that it was connected to other stones that could influence what he saw. One of the other stones was in the keeping of the enemy. And Denethor in himself did not have the will or the strength. He thought he did, but he did not have the will or the strength to look in the stone where he would want to. Instead, every time he looked in the stone, Gandalf, the good wizard, in explaining what happened to Denethor says, when he looked in the stone, he was shown only what the enemy wanted him to see. And what he saw caused him discouragement and despair. When you're reading the traditions of men, the commentary, the newsreels, everything that's out there, a great question to ask yourself, I've loved learning this from TI this, this year, we use the language of consolation and desolation. It's too simplistic to say, are you feeling happy or are you feeling sad? I love that actually consolation is when it's inspiring faith, hope, and love in you. And desolation is when it's decreasing faith, hope, and love. So when you're reading on the internet, when you're engaging in media, when you're consuming, ask yourself, what's the spiritual fruit? Is it leading me to despair? Is it leading me to doubt in the power and the presence of God? Or is it leading me to greater faith? And that right there is your first clue is this healthy for me? Is it good for me? Or am I like Denethor looking in the stone and somebody else is controlling what I'm seeing and it is impacting me in a bad way? These are the traditions of men, the commentary that's all around. And we have to be on our guard. We have to be rooted in the scriptures, distinguished from the teachings and traditions of other voices all around us. And yes, I would say, even make it concrete, make it 
measurable. Say the amount of minutes that I'm going to spend in the Scriptures will be equal to or greater than the amount of time I'm going to be reading what other people think about things. Last thing I'll say on this, if you have time to be scrolling the news or checking this post or this or that, if you have time to do that, you have time to do something more essential. So you cannot say, I'm too busy to be regularly in the Word of God. I just don't have margin. My life is… One of those things is more important than the other. It's up to you to decide which are you going to prioritize, and it matters. It matters. Jesus said, abide in me, and I will abide in you. But then later, he, he qualifies that, and he says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. So, throw this out to you, since Lent is two and a half weeks away, for your consideration. I'm not saying that you should give up news and, and media for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that. But you could do it for six weeks. You could absolutely do that for six weeks. You could do an incredibly strict, rigorous media fast throughout Lent, and at the same time, give yourself to the study of, well, let's say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, just reading it over and over and over again. And then just see at the end, are you better off? What's the spiritual fruit that's being born if you were to take up that discipline? I'll throw it out there to you. Maybe some of you will actually do that this Lent. I think it could be a good thing. Now, <clears throat> when we go back to Jesus' teaching, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we understand why it had power. As he taught the Word of God and the way of God, it was so clear he had a knowledge of the subject matter. He didn't know just about it, but he lived it. He had an expertise that came from experience. He had a gravitas. There was a weightiness, an authority, because he spoke of things that mattered in a way that resonated with people who were listening. He inspired them, and he demonstrated leadership that people would follow. Also, he wasn't meddling around, attaching his own spin on the petty quibbles and quarrels and theological disputes of his day. He wasn't doing that. You know, often it was typical that Rabbis, in order to uh, kind of build up their own authority, would appeal to a higher authority and always say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, or Rabbi so-and-so says this. Do you notice? Jesus never does that. He never appeals to a higher authority because he knows my authority is the highest there is. It stands on its own. I don't have to appeal to another rabbi. So he's not just adding his own spin to all the other controversies of the day. Instead, he's plowing a bold new path while he speaks of things that really matter, speaking of the things of God. He was clearing up falsehood and misunderstanding. He'll often say in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He had a clear-sighted, bracing, and even bold vision for the Christian life, what it meant to follow him. I mean, think about some of his teachings on anger, lust, divorce, retaliation, loving your enemy. I mean, he said, if, if you even curse your brother, if you say a bad thing about them, if you slander them, you are in danger of, the, of hellfire, he says, and you are a murderer. Even if you don't actually commit a sexual act with someone, but you think about it and you desire it and you meditate upon that, 
It is the same thing. You're an adulterer, he says. He says it's better to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye than to be thrown into the hell of fire. He also says with retaliation, if somebody takes something from you, give them something else. If they take your cloak, give them your coat. If they strike you on the cheek in anger, turn the other cheek. Give to the one who asks without expecting anything in return. And he says, if you love those who think like you and love you back, so what? He says, so what? Instead, he says, love your enemy, and then you will begin to be like your Father in heaven, whose love is complete, whose love is even for those who opposed him. Speaking of you and me. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he left no room for waffling. At the very end, he said, you're either building your house on the sand or you're building your house on the rock. There's no third way about it. Choose. You're either with me or you're against me. Fork in the road called for a response. You can see why the people listening to this were astonished and even a little bit afraid. I feel that way. I hope you do too. It's bracing. It's intense. But he also taught with integrity, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They were very clear in all of their rules. They were very clear. As long as you do the outward act, what you thought or felt on the inside did not matter. And that was one of the things that Jesus went after the most. Because it's easy to see how thinking like that naturally devolves into an utter loss of integrity. And by that, I mean there's no integration. What I do outwardly is not integrated with who I am inwardly. And I'm split. That's not integrity. And Jesus says the opposite. Well, and also you'll lose trust in your followers when that's the case. Jesus reversed that and he said, actually what matters most is what's inside. Why you do what you do. What it is that you love. What it is that you hold up and you call good. That's what matters most. And if you get that right, then the actions will flow from that. The outward things will naturally flow. So Jesus taught as one who had authority. And the people were astonished, amazed, and even a little bit afraid. And that was all before he even cast out the, the unclean spirit. So look now at verse 23. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And it might seem strange that the demon would be naming Jesus of Nazareth the Holy One of God and, and almost recognizing his authority. I mean, among the people, the demon also recognizes the authority. And the teaching of the scriptures are that, uh, well, the, sorry, the, the history of the church tradition is that the demons were fallen angels, in which case this demon had actually seen Jesus before in eternity past. Sorry, not eternity past at the beginning of time. So, he says, you're the Holy One of God. What's actually happening here is he's trying to control Jesus. There was a belief then, as it is now, that in spiritual warfare, if you can name and identify the other spirit or being or person, then you can control them. And that's what this unclean spirit is attempting to do, but he, he fails. 
He cannot control Jesus. And Jesus responds, look what he does. He speaks. Be silent and come out of him. Short and simple. Typical at that time among Jewish exorcists would be incantations and formulas and other things that they would use, devices to help try to gain more power to cast out this demon. With Jesus, it's simply the power of his word. Short and simple. Be silent and go. And immediately, the spirit convulses the man, cries out with a loud voice, and leaves. He obeys Jesus, and the people are astonished and probably slightly terrified again. This is intense. There's an intense teaching. There's this intense combat and battle between Jesus and this unclean spirit. The people are astonished and probably a bit afraid and wondering, what, what next? What do I do? How do I stand up to that teaching and authority? And maybe you feel like that sometimes too. I know I do. It's hard to be rooted in the scriptures because sometimes they rock us. And the words of Jesus are not always palatable. Maybe you feel that way. The Bible is intense. Maybe you feel the struggle and the battle with evil around you or even within you is also really intense and you're wondering, how do I stand up in all of this? When David the psalmist was feeling similarly, he wrote some of the most beautiful lines in a great prayer that we can always take with us. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So when you're feeling that way of, man, this is intense. I'm astonished. I'm a little bit afraid of Jesus right now. That's actually okay to be afraid of Jesus sometimes. Take the prayer of David, create in me a clean heart. See, this is the battle between unclean and clean, and he's saying, I know I'm unclean. Give me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. That's a prayer that God will never turn down. He will never turn down that humble plea. Cleanse me. Renew me. And most of all, best of all, put your spirit in me. Why did Jesus cast out this unclean spirit? Because his intention all along was to fill that man and to fill every one of you with his own spirit. That's the goal of salvation. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again from the dead. That's why he ascended to heaven. And so that at Pentecost, you could be filled with the clean spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that is what gives us the power to do what, no, we couldn't do on our own. That is what gives us the power to actually rise to this intense, bold, bracing vision of humanity that Jesus lays out for us. It's to say, create in me a clean heart and renew in me, yes, even your own Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, that's exactly why I've come. That's exactly why I've come. To cast out evil in every form and to fill you with my own Spirit. So, Jesus, we offer ourselves to you as empty vessels, weak, barely able to stand before your bracing authority, afraid even if we're honest sometimes. 
And yet, Lord, we trust more boldly, we hope more strongly in the word of your grace that you have come to fill us with your own spirit, to cast out the evil that is in us, to spare us and preserve us from the evil around us. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you as your servants. Fill us, preserve us, save us, lift us up. And all for your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.